All right, Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me. This session, I want to talk about sort of relationship dynamics or kind of just healthy ways to relate to one another, uh, proper ways to treat each other, to survive. Uh, In life, I think in general, everybody to some degree has to learn how to do relationships with other people. Uh, because part of life, obviously, is interacting with other people regularly and learning how to live together with other human beings. And if that's important on earth just generally <laughs> with all human beings, that we got to learn how to do relationships, we got to learn how to interact with people. If that's important generally, how much more is that important in the most superior relationships, which is the marriage relationship? Uh, to me, honestly, I think marriage is kind of like human relationship on steroids. Uh, I mean, you can't get anything more intense in relationship experience than marriage. And as Christians, we're expected as well to live on a higher plane. Uh, we're not to be conforming to the patterns of the world and how the world does things, how the world operates in their marriages as Christians. Uh, God calls us to live on a higher standard. We're to serve the Lord. We're to want to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We're not to just be seeking after our own self-interests alone. We've been called to live in a manner that obeys Jesus, uh, that follows what the Word of God says is our authority. We have the truth of Scripture to guide us regarding what is right and what is wrong according to God's standard. Uh, We have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to rise above our feelings at times, to rise above maybe the circumstances or stress or what experiences have happened or our thoughts and still do what's right as a choice and an act of the will. And an example of that, if you look with me here in Ephesians 5, verse 17 and 18, he says, verse 17, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. The idea is wild, uncontrolled living. But be filled with the Spirit. So contrary to the wrong message that our world sends to all of us, neither our life personally nor our marriage is supposed to be about asserting our own will. Uh, Life is not about, well, you got to fight for yourself and get your own way and do what you need to do to look after yourself. Uh, that's not to be our highest ideal, nor is marriage to be something where we make our highest ideal about personal happiness. Uh, That's a great mistake all of us can make. Uh, That's a foolish and an immature way, honestly, to operate not only as a person, but as a married couple. The last I checked, many of you have raised children. I've raised young children at the ages of adult life now. And children, particularly young children, due to a lack of understanding and immaturity, always want their own way, right? That's a mark of childishness, always wanting to have your own way. But once we're adults, we're supposed to grow up and we're supposed to mature and learn how to consider other people. And we should understand, most importantly, what the Lord wants. That's why he says in verse 17 to us here, don't behave in an unwise or a foolish way, but understand, take time to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, as we understand what the will of the Lord is regarding relationships and marriage, particularly, where's the power come from to do that? Because sometimes I don't lack for knowing, I lack for doing, right? Uh, I had someone that I used to meet with when they were ill and, and at the latter stages of their life, and their famous phrase was always, I knew better, I just didn't do better. And sometimes we don't lack for knowing. We know what to do, but where does the power come from to, to carry those things out and execute them? Well, whether it's living generally or healthy relationship dynamics with people in general uh, or marriage relationship, it's never going to come from self-resolve. It's never going to come through determination and gritting your teeth and trying to be more loving. It's going to come from supernatural enablement to live according to the will of the Lord. That's why in verse 18, he makes this beautiful statement that we're not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled instead with the Holy Spirit. The command there is to allow ourself, it's in the passive sense, allow yourself, and it's in the present sense, in the perfect sense, to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And he uses this analogy there to draw a picture that we can relate to of not being drunk with wine, but instead being filled 
were under the influence, the ideas of the Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful analogy because when someone, you know, ingests alcohol or someone's under the influence of drugs or alcohol, what does it do? The alcohol influences the way they look at things. The alcohol influences the way that they think differently. It influences the way they speak and the way that they behave. Well, God's saying, look, in the same way, not that false spirit, I want you to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What is a spirit-filled life? It's a life that is allowing itself to be under the influence of God's Spirit so that God's Spirit is directing the way that I look at things, that the Holy Spirit is influencing how I relate to somebody, how I speak to somebody or don't speak to somebody. It's the Holy Spirit influencing me in my life and in my interactions. Well, God's Word, thankfully, gives to us many, many passages of how to do relationships properly. It addresses how we're to treat people, not only in the church as far as our spiritual family, but instruction about how to treat our friends and our family members and people in the world. And if those biblical instructions of how to relate to people and how to treat other individuals around us, if those things apply for inferior relationships, how much more, again, should they be carried out in the most superior relationship which is the marriage experience. It's all the more important. These relationship principles we find in God's word, if they apply for me and my brother in the Lord or me and my children or me and a friend or me and somebody in the world, that's how I'm supposed to act as a Christian, how much more is that crucial to execute those same things in a marriage relationship? Because that's relationship on steroids, 24-7, till death do us part in the closest way. Now, in the next session... I'm going to address from Ephesians 5, to 33, specific roles of how to be the husband that my wife needs me to be uh, and how to be the wife that your, you know, your, your husband needs you to be. But before we address that specifically, I think it's important to first learn how to exercise proper relationship dynamics just generically, just general relationship principles for experiencing healthy relationship dynamics. So what I want to do is look at some of these instructions we find in God's Word about doing relationships God's way and how to do that, and I want to purposely, I'm telling you in advance, apply them to marriage. I'm not trying to take them out of context. They're relationship instructions generally, but certainly they should apply maritally as well, and I want to make the application in that way. So first, if you look with me, glance down to verse 21. Of course, it's the last verse before direct marital instruction, Ephesians 5.21. And look what God says here as a part of the spirit-filled life, what we're to do. Verse 18, be filled with the spirit. Verse 21, this is one of the things that should be happening once we are. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So as I am under the influence of God's spirit in my life, wanting to do the will of the Lord, the Bible says here that out of reverence for the ultimate authority, who is God, out of fear and reverence of God, that I should conduct myself as God empowers me to in humility and in love and in a way whereby I learn how to yield, if you would, to other people. That's the idea. He says there that we should all, as people, we should all be submitting to one Another And again, that word submit speaks of voluntarily putting yourself in subjection to the idea or desire of another. That's what that term speaks about there. It speaks of yielding or cooperating, surrendering my will so that I might honor the will or preference of somebody else, submitting to what they want, yielding to what they desire. It's this age-old thing that's challenging, but it's this. It's learning how to say no to yourself so that you can say yes to somebody else. And that's a hard thing for selfish people. And we're all very selfish naturally. But God says, I want you as my people filled with my spirit to learn how to be submitting to one another, to learn how at times to say no to yourself, to deny yourself and your will for the sake of harmony with somebody else or for the sake of the happiness of someone else, saying no to yourself so that you can actually say yes to them. And look, that's a key relationship skill, not just in life, but it is crucial for marriage. Learning how to submit one to another. You know, marriage is like a lifelong journey of constant negotiation. 
and learning how at times to say no to yourself and yes to the other and considering how that can apply in situations. Again, that is a crucial relational principle that a lot of times we overlook in our marriage relationships. That as we're filled with the Spirit, God wants us to be able at times to just deny ourselves and to not have to have our own way. So purposely be intentional to try and yield to the other person. Again, newsflash, you don't always have to have your way. You really don't. Uh, that's, that's a tough marital lesson, but boy, that's something, if you want to have some harmony in your marriage, a big part of that begins right there. You know, an, an older sister in the Lord was like a spiritual mother to me when we were pastoring back at Calvary Chapel in York there. She always used to say, periodically, when she'd give marital instructions, she always used to say, you can tell who the most spiritual spouse is because they're always the first person to eat humble pie. And I thought, man, that's good. The first person to eat humble pie and to just say, you know what? Surrender. I don't, we don't need to keep fighting over this. And that's, that's a real evidence at times of the Spirit of God working in our life that we can yield and submit to someone else in our life. Well, how does that kind of work itself out practically in interacting with people? Well, go with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians. should be just to your right. Next book, Philippians chapter 2. And let's look at two verses here that are great relationship verses and apply, I think, of what it looks like to submit to one another, as we're told in Ephesians. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. It says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In verse 5, he indicates, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, these two verses often overlooked, but to me, they have been lifelong marital principles that I find to be very valuable in my own marriage relationship. Here are some really key concepts to interacting with anybody in a close relationship, let alone with a person in your closest relationship with your spouse. And notice they stem from, verse 5 says, not a worldly mindset, not a natural human outlook, but from actually trying to have the perspective of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says there, first of all, in verse 3, don't allow yourself to be directed by that natural tendency within all of us of a self-serving attitude. That's a natural tendency. But he says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Again, the idea of selfish ambition there speaks of being motivated to do what's in your best interest, where you place yourself as the first priority. I found a definition of the word selfishness. I thought it was a fantastic expanded definition. It says this of selfishness, excessive self-love that prompts one for the sake of personal gratification or advantage to disregard the rights or the feelings of another. Boy, that's a great illustration of at times when we're selfish, even in our marital lives. The word ambition speaks, of course, of a strong desire to basically achieve something. When you're ambitious, you're driven to do something in a very kind of stubborn and determined way to basically get the end result of what you want for yourself. And he says, don't let selfish ambition, he says, or conceit characterize the way that you interact with others. And again, what does conceit speak of? It's the idea of arrogance. It speaks of esteeming yourself as more important than other people. And again, this can be a great deterrent to doing what God really wants in our lives. What he's saying is, look, don't let these things characterize your behavior. And what he wants us to remember in relationships, and I think particularly in marriage, is contrary to how some married couples do behave and how they do interact as if it's acceptable, our primary focus in marriage cannot be on our own goals, our own pursuits, our own happiness, because we're living in an equal partnership now with another person. And because we're having a shared life, when we made a decision to enter into a joint relationship, we also decided to surrender all of our own goals and our own pursuits and our desire to have everything go the way that we want it to go. And as I said before, if you still want to function like you're single, whether it's how you spend money 
whether it's the lifestyle you want to pursue or your weekly activities, you may want to consider if you have a little bit of a problem with selfish ambition because that could be what's driving that going on. And I assure you, it's not only going to be rude and hurtful because you're going to disregard your spouse, it's going to negatively affect your marriage relationship. It's going to start to cause challenges. So God says, let's not behave in that way, verse 3, through selfish ambition and conceit, but now he's going to give the antidote. Here's the way to resolve that, he says. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So he gives the warning, and then he gives the counteractive solution. Guard against selfishness, and he says, and here's the way to solve it. Basically, he says, seek to think less about yourself. Be intentional, actually putting it into practice, because it's not going to come natural. By nature, I wake up, I think about myself. I don't know about you. First thing I look at in the morning, myself in the mirror, right? I mean, just think of our bathrooms, right? You have the toilet there, the mirror's right in front of you. The first thing you see in the morning, oh, there's me. And it almost like it just is a natural influence of our entire life. And so it's easy to think about yourself. It's difficult, and you have to be intentional to actually do what verse 3 says is the solution, which he says is to do something that's unnatural, which is basically says in lowliness of mind, humility, esteem other people better than yourself. That is, how's that going to work maritally? That means esteeming your spouse in your mind as more important than you. Now, that's not a novel concept, but it is a wonderful thing to learn how to put in practice, to put that into play. You know, I have always tried using these verses, and I certainly I don't do it perfectly, to basically view my wife as more important than me and to take that principle of God's wisdom and to put it into application to say, okay, her needs are more important than mine. Her happiness is more important than mine. Her getting her way is more important than me getting my way. And to take what God has said and to try and put it into practice and how you relate to someone. To say, okay, I can take the leftovers so that she can get what's best. Her being able to, you know, have this. And if you just begin to view the other person in that way, something really wonderful starts to happen. Where you genuinely look at them and say, they are more important than I am. And you treat them that way, you relate to them that way, you operate and function in that way, you put a higher value on them and try and fulfill them first and, and seek to see them pleased and taken care of first. I just, again, want to really encourage you, try it. Genuinely try to look at your spouse that way and to treat them in that way is more important. Again, it brings me back to, again, what did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Now, when Jesus came into the world, would you agree? He's more important than everybody. I mean, come on. I mean, he's important. But he didn't view himself as the most important. He came in a way with the mind of Christ, and he made us more important than him. And he humbly served and did what he did to make things better for us ultimately. So verse 4, he expounds upon that, saying, And let each of you look out not only for his own interests. Again, nothing wrong to a degree with taking care of yourself. But he says, not only for your own interests. You can't just think about yourself he says, but also for the interests of others. And again, why? Because it's natural to automatically consider your own interests. Nobody has to tell us. Well, maybe when you're young and you're trying to teach a kid how to <laughs> be responsible, you, you can clean up your room, take care of yourself. But you know, typically, we take care of ourselves. Our own interests, being comfortable, being happy, doing what we want, that's natural to look out for your own interests. What's not natural is to take into consideration the interests of other people. You know, it's that old term that our culture is losing. It's called considerate, manners, taking into consideration, okay, if I do this among this group of people, is that going to be rude to everybody else? I mean, these are the things that, again, are, are very simplistic that we should do in the world, and they're all the more important in our marriage that we have to look beyond ourselves and be considerate of our spouse, and nowhere is that more essential than in marriage. So, again, how does that work? Well, that means that every day, as you seek to live out your marital life, you should take these verses into consideration. These are great memory verses. To let them be ingrained in a part of your life and how you live where you basically say, okay, 
I should always take into consideration my spouse's interest in everything that I do or I don't do. So that begins to translate. So as I make decisions, I make decisions big and small by saying, okay, if I make this decision, how will that affect Trish? If I'm going to make this decision, how will that have an influence upon her, upon her day or our life or what we're going to go through or not go through? And, and to think in consideration of her interests before I make that personal decision. It means in regards to if I pursue this, how's that going to influence her? You know, how will this, if I do it, have an impact and effect upon my spouse? Because it's going to, right? So it's so much more wise to say in advance, okay, I can't just do this because it's in my best interest or it's what I'm interested in. I have to think about, is this in her best interest? If I do this, would that be in his best interest in that situation? And would this really be what's best? And to live in that considerateness of our life partner where the things we do and the choices we make, we know we're going to directly affect them. So we purposely try and think in that way on the front side of that. So that applies to, again, how I spend my time, how I spend my time. Before I was married, I could work to whatever hour I wanted to, and then I just drove home. Now I actually need to take into consideration, and I'm not saying I have to be irresponsible in my job or you as well, but I need to take into consideration, oh, I'm running late. Sometimes that may mean sending a text or making a call. Hey, I'm going to be late. I just want just want to let you know. I mean, i got to do what my employer says, I'm trying to make some money here, but just want to let you know. If you're cooking a meal, I'm going to be late. Or that, It's a time thing. It means that if I'm doing this or doing that, I'm taking into consideration, well, if I spend time doing this, is that going to make her life more difficult? Or is it going to make his life more burdensome because I'm occupied spending my time doing this? So where I go and what I do, you know, I'm taking into consideration the interests of my spouse. I'll tell you another area, again, being just very practical and nuts and bolts. You know, how do you take into consideration the interests of your spouse? Well, to me, that applies to everything. When you're being loving, that also means things like your appearance, your personal hygiene. You know, these simple little things. Well, I'm just, I'm married now. I dress how I want. I'm married now. I'm married now. If I want to look frumpy, I'll look frumpy. Well, look, th that may be what you want to do, but is that really taking into consideration the interests of your spouse? You know, whatever, you know. Take that into Do you want to know the reason why I wear a lot of blue and black? <laughs> I'm not dumb, man. Do you want to know the reason? I, I, I could care less how I dress. But if she wants me to dress a certain way, that's not complicated. I put on this shirt or that shirt. Whatever one you like better. To me, that's taken into consideration her interests. If she likes me to appear a certain way, why would that? Why would I ignore that? Not only is that unloving and inconsistent, why would I not want to look attractive? There's tons of men out there in the world. I want to protect my marriage. And see, this works both ways. As a woman, you should take into consideration, look, there's a lot of women out there being scandalous and trying to get a man's attention. So I'm not saying that you need to look like a Victoria's Secret supermodel 24-7. But what I'm telling you is you should take into consideration looking attractive for your spouse. You should take into consideration taking care of yourself, your health. What do they like? What do they think looks pretty? And again, you know, making sure I take care of myself, my own personal hygiene. Again, like these are just simple things, but it's taking interest in your spouse. And again, you can apply this from the largest things to the biggest things, your expression of affection, when you, you know, allow its, you know, physical intimacy, well, I don't want, well, what about your spouse? Are you taking into consideration their interests in those situations? So my question for us to search our hearts is, how are we doing in this category? To just honestly evaluate yourself and keep yourself in check, are you looking beyond just your own interests alone? Is it possible, maybe to some degree, that you know, maybe you haven't been doing that all the time in ways that you should. Maybe you need to grow in that area a little bit of trying to be considered. And maybe, perhaps, you should ask, is there something that I've been doing in my life that really hasn't been too considerate of my spouse? Is there something that I'm participating in or involved in that maybe I'm having a, I'm having a grand old time doing that? I, 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 I love doing that. Well, but 
maybe is you doing that, somehow being inconsiderate to your spouse or neglecting them or not paying attention to what may be in their best interest. Again, this comes back to that idea of saying no to ourself in order to say yes to our spouse at times. So again, just vital, vital principles. One other passage, go over with me back to the left, just real quickly to Ephesians 4. And these are other great verses, a lot of relationship dynamics that are discussed, but they're wonderful to put into practice maritally. Again, if they apply generally, boy, these things certainly apply maritally. These truths are an anchor for marriage advice. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 25, and we'll look down through verse 32. First thing he says is, therefore, putting away lying. That's important for marriage. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. You don't just have a neighbor. You have a life partner, it says. For we are members, well, God did say that, right? Members of one another. So the first thing that's addressed there is honest, open communication, never permitting yourself to lie in the marriage relationship because our lives aren't just, well, we're friends or we hang out together or we're co-workers or, you know, we're church family. You're living a shared life. You want to talk about being members of one another, you're seriously members of one another, so any form of dishonesty has a direct and damaging impact. You have to be diligent and fully committed to honesty in the marriage relationship. This is absolutely essential. Any form of lying, listen, or even not sharing full information, because that's lying too, is not good. It's not God's design. Nothing should be hidden there should be no holding back information. There should never be holding back on what activities you're doing. There should be an openness and no refraining from sharing your struggles or situations maybe that happened. We need to communicate about these things. We should never allow ourselves because when lying happens, right, and I'm sure to every degree, a married couple's maybe had their little bump in the road with that in a big or a small way. But when lying happens, what happens? Trust is damaged. And when trust gets damaged, it is a difficult thing to regain. It's a difficult thing to rebuild. And it causes great damage to the marriage relationship. Lying and hiding things causes your spouse to then be very suspicious. And you know as well as I do, living in a relationship when somebody is constantly a suspicious person is never enjoyable. No couple is ever happy when there's been lying or broken trust, and now there's the other struggle of always being suspicious. And now all you are is, you know, wrapping up the last half hour at work, and you have a wife that's all worried. What are you doing? What are you really doing? What are you really doing? Well, I went to Wawa. What were you doing to Wawa? Well, I was, I was just getting coffee. Who else was getting coffee? And, and, you know, we laugh about it, but what happens is when some form of lying takes place in a marriage relationship, these are the dynamics that couples then struggle with. And, you know, we can chuckle about it, but it's really hard to work through that sometimes. And it's something that can become a very detrimental thing. So we have to recognize lying and dishonesty is very damaging to relationships. We want to learn to be truthful. That's why he says in verse 25, beyond just not lying and putting away lying, he says, let each of you speak truth instead to one another. So again, we have to be speaking the truth in all matters. It's important to learn how to have the courage to always just speak the truth. And sometimes that takes even courage to develop. You must figure out as a husband, as a wife, how to address things with your spouse. Well, I don't like confrontation. Well, that's part of marriage, first of all. <laughs> you have to learn how to address things. Your feelings, what's going on in your life, times when you rub each other the wrong way. You have to learn how to not just lie, but also how to communicate and how to share with your spouse what you're thinking, your fears, your struggles. You can't hold back from communicating. It's essential to proper relationship. And again, remember, the Bible also tells us the right way to do this Within this same chapter, it says that we're to be speaking the truth in love. That's how we're to speak the truth, in love. Now, typically, we can tend to err on one side or the other. Either we're really good about speaking the truth, but we don't do it in a very loving way, and that's usually not good, or 
we want to be so loving and so compassionate and always get along, we never speak the truth and we never communicate and we're too hesitant or too intimidated to address something because we feel it's unloving or confrontational. Well, you don't have to be confrontational, but you have to confront things. You have to communicate and dialogue with your spouse. So again, there's both sides of this that are important, and communication is that two-way street. Again, we have to learn how to be someone who speaks, and we also have to learn how to be someone who listens. And a lot of times, right, we tend to have maybe a bigger strength and weakness on both sides of that. Some people are very good at speaking, and, and they overspeak, and they overdominate their spouse, and they ask a question, and they overdominate in the conversation, and, and they make the spouse feel intimidated or shutting off from speaking. And they need to really learn how to listen. The Bible says he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame. You got to learn how to listen and give your spouse a chance to talk once in a while and discipline yourself if you struggle with that. But then the other weakness sometimes is some spouses just really struggle with talking. And they're always trying to suppress things and hold them in, and they're keeping it to themselves, and they're not really opening up and sharing things. Well, look, that's important too. You can't shut down. You can't close off. You gotta, you gotta communicate what you're thinking and communicate what you're feeling and speak up. You have license to do that. You're married, and we gotta create an atmosphere where that can take place among us. Well, of course, when you talk to one another, what's gonna happen? That's verse 26. Be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give the place, he says, to the devil. So these verses address what we often call that important subject of conflict resolution. Because when two people in love are going to speak the truth to one another, at times, right, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreements or offenses are going to happen. It's normal to anger one another at times. It's part of a close and ongoing relationship. It's naive to think that there should never be at times occasions when one person gets angry or you both get upset and have a, you know, argument or whatever. The result is we are two imperfect people with different perspectives. One's from Mars, one's from Venus, one's a man, one's a woman. And as we start trying to work through things together, there's going to be times where you're going to, whether intentionally or just unintentionally hurt one another. You're going to offend one another. You're going to say something in a tone that you know just causes anger. But look, these things don't have to be deal breakers, folks. It's called that we, from these things, realize that conflict resolution is necessary. So he addresses here being angry but not sinning. Again, take notice, be angry. The Bible doesn't tell us that God doesn't get angry. It just says God is slow to anger. Anger is a God-given emotion. If you want to kind of play this, you know, I'm super nice and hyper-spiritual, I don't ever get angry. I don't like to get angry. I never get angry. Well, well, listen, that's not healthy. If you can experience and watch certain things that happen in our world and you never get angry, something's wrong with you. Right? There are certain things that you should get angry about. There are certain times as a married couple when your spouse does something or something said, a right response is you're angry. I'm angry about the way that you just treated me, or I'm angry about that you did that, and you didn't let me know. Anger is a normal God-given emotion to identify something is going on in our lives. So anger is a healthy, proper emotion that arises, but what he's telling us in these verses is when you are angry, don't allow your anger to translate into wrong behavior, into sin. What you do with your anger is what God holds you and I responsible for in accountability. So we have to be real. You should be real when you're angry and honest about it. Again, that's verse 25. We don't want to lie when we're angry, but anger is an indicator, and it should never be, listen, a dictator. Anger indicates something happened between us. Something happened. It indicates something, but you don't want anger to become a dictator where it controls you, and then you behave in a way that is wrong before God or hurtful towards your spouse. Anger is never a justification to behave wrong or hurtful. Anger is to be channeled constructively, not destructively. And God tells us that here. He says, don't sin. And then he goes on to say, and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So again, the idea there is is dealing with anger that happens sooner rather than later. He said, don't let the sun set on your wrath. Something's really upset you. You need to resolve something that you're angry about. He's in essence saying, look, don't bury it. 
Don't just suppress it and, and try and hold it in because, look, all that's going to happen, I'm telling you, is the volcano will erupt eventually. So it's better to just gradually let it leak out and talk through it than suppress it and just blow up at some later point because you've hardened or suppressed it or whatever, start addressing it. Again, when he says don't let the sun go down on your wrath, do you get the idea he's kind of saying like deal with it within the day, he's kind of saying. Don't let the sun set until you've addressed it. Now, let me just say in connection to that, having been married you know, 25 years myself, there was one occasion back in 2001 that we had an argument, um, <laughs> and there was a little bit of anger. Let me tell you one of the things that I feel like that we've learned as a married couple is there also comes a time where in wisdom and stewardship where maybe you talk about something, there's anger, you're trying to address it, you're trying to work through it, you're both expressing and listening and expressing and listening and the intensity and so forth, and you're starting to realize we are both expressing what we think and this seems like it's getting intense and uh, at a certain point we have learned that sometimes it is healthy to say, look, this isn't a deal breaker. Forever, for always, no matter what. Not a deal breaker. We're not seeing eye to eye. We even tried to talk about it. Maybe what we need to do, I say, is hit the pause button. And we need to go to bed and just sleep it off and get up in the morning and spend time with Jesus. And maybe we can pick up in the next quarter. And we, and we can talk. Yes, we need to talk about it more. I'm not saying we dismiss it and, well, we're not going to talk about that. Just brush it under the rug. No, no. What you do need to do sometimes, I think, is just hit the pause button. You've made an effort. Rather than keep trying to belabor, and here's what I mean by that. We are going to resolve this before the sun rises tomorrow morning. And it, I, babe, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. We have to work. We got to get up at 6. No, no, no. We are going to resolve this. And right in the meantime, you're becoming like a demon because you're just so intense and you're so exhausted. These are all illustrations. I'm not personal applications. Hit the pause button. Just hit the pause button. Do I look sleepy today? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hit the pause button. You have to address it, but you don't have to finish the process, maybe all, in one session. And why does he give us this instruction, verse 27? He says, so you don't give place to the devil. Well, you recognize how God's indicating there that one of the devil's primary base camps is to use anger between a couple. Undealt with anger, undealt with offenses when conflicts are not resolved properly through a couple. And look, we found that sometimes when we delay and then revisit it, I pray, she prays, we read our Bibles, you let a day go by, you readdress the conversation, a lot of times then it's just resolved a lot more simply. Just again, and, and you don't let the devil set up base camp. You close off the doorway on the devil when you address things and you make sure that they're resolved and you don't leave lingering anger and animosity. Well, verse 28, he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now you say, wait a minute, how in the world could that somehow, it's a relationship principle, apply to marriage? Well, think with me in this way. A person who steals does what? They're a selfish taker. A person who steals is somebody who's constantly taking instead of contributing. And instead of responsibly contributing their own part, they're always selfishly stealing or taking from other people. Well, to me, this certainly can apply because he says the antidote for being a selfish taker is what? He says, let that person learn to labor and work themselves so that they can contribute and have something to give to others. So the idea of the selfish taker is to become a responsible contributor. And sometimes, from my observation, in marriages, one spouse can start to become a little excessive in being a selfish taker sometimes. And it may happen unconsciously. It may be happening for whatever reason where one spouse kind of starts to let the other spouse be the primary one who's doing all the contributing and doing way more and bearing the load of all the work and the tasks. And they're kind of subtly taking advantage of their spouse a little bit. And they're kind of just you know, in an unkind way, abusing all the contribution of time and effort and energy that's being put in by their partner 
And they're gradually kind of starting to be like a selfish taker and use their spouse like a slave. And God says that's not good. A good marriage relationship is two people contributing and doing their part as partners, working together. And again, we want to be willing to put in the work and always do your part, whether it's doing your part with raising the kids and taking care of children, whether it's doing your part with domestic duties, whether it's doing your part with life responsibilities. Look, none of this sitting on the couch or none of this you know, nonsense of you know, you're off playing like a little child and running around having fun doing your thing and your spouse is carrying all the load. And they're the one doing all the work and maintaining life and maintaining the household. We each should be a responsible contributor in the marriage. Keep yourself in check there. Make sure that you're trying to be a responsible contributor. Don't take advantage of a servant-hearted spirit that your spouse may have. They're not your mommy. They're not your daddy. You be a contributor. They're your spouse. You make sure you contribute your fair share so your spouse doesn't become overburdened. And let me say in connection to that, sometimes I want to say keep that in mind even with financial spending. Because sometimes with excess money, or you might call it discretionary funds, sometimes one spouse has a little more of a tendency to always be spending the excess resources on their toys and their hobbies and their fun, and the other spouse is kind of getting a little overlooked in that process. So be careful in regards to that kind of thing where you're taking too much and not contributing properly the way that you should. Verse 29, he gives some communication instruction. Let no corrupt word, he says, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. So here he speaks about literally how we talk to one another, how we communicate and speak to one another, that we use our words intentionally. And the instruction in verse 29 is that we don't let our words start to defile the love in our relationship. And we have all made that mistake before where we use statements that are unkind or critical or we're speaking in ways where maybe we're always complaining or we're always discontent and we're being hurtful maybe or harsh. And it can be the way that you speak to your spouse, whether it's your tone or the attitude and what you say, whether it's the statements that you use. Sometimes it's honestly, folks, even in how you speak about your spouse in public settings. And that'll do some real damage. Too much joking and criticizing and coming too comfortable with that. And the best way to counteract that, he says in verse 29, that temptation to fail with our words, the best way to counteract it, as he says, is be proactive. You see what he says in verse 29? He says, instead, speak in a way that is necessary for edification, that is to build up, that it may impart grace to the one who is listening. So being intentional to purposely speak in a way that's actually helpful, trying to be purposeful. Okay, I know I'm automatically tempted at times to use my words wrong, but let me counteract that by actually trying to take initiative to use my words in an intentional way. That is to do things like what? Be complimentary. Remember you did that when you were dating? Use your words instead of complaining or criticizing. That's so easy to do when you live together 24-7, right? We say familiarity breeds contempt. And it's so easy to just complain or criticize or identify things. But he says, look, use your words intentionally to build up the other person. Try and be proactive to encourage, to uplift. Let them feel cherished. You know, talk in a manner with statements that express your love or commitment. This kind of stuff greases the gears of love and romance. You know, reaffirm that they're special to you. Tell them what you admire about them. Say things that are going to bring, he says, grace, that is great encouragement and favor into the relationship. I just encourage you, don't let your words be destructive when you can use your words to be very, very constructive. Words are huge, huge. You know, though I don't like a lot of things about technology and, you know, texting and social media and all that kind of stuff, one of the things I like about texting, man, it's like instant Hallmark card stuff. I can spend 30 seconds, I can write something, you know, sweet, kind to my wife in the middle of the day. It indicates he thought about me. He said something to me that encouraged me, you know, hey, I just want to let you know, you know, 
your legs are probably really tired because you've been running through my mind all day long. <laughs> hey, laugh. If I get a kiss, if I get a kiss at night, it was worth it. You just, just the simplest of things. Hey, I just want to let you know you're, you know, I think you're a beautiful, godly, wonderful woman. Look, I'm not making this up. I do it. You can call me corny. I don't care. I got a good marriage. I'm enjoying it. It's using your words. Admire, encourage, say those kind of things. It, it counterbalances for all the dumb things you say. Maybe that's why I do it. I'm not going to make a counter out the balance. You know, I know I'm going to say 10 dumb things tonight. Let me try and say one or two good things to balance the scales a little bit. But use your words to impart grace. Again, let the Holy Spirit help you. This is a, a really vital thing to be able to do. He says then, verse 30 through 32, And don't grieve the Holy Spirit, break God's heart, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's a part of your marriage. He lives within you and your spouse as a Christian. But let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, verses 30 through 32, to me, coupled together really well because they deal with the importance of moving past infractions, moving beyond offenses or hurts and times that we, in a sense, have conflict or hurt between us and how much that matters to God. Again, as I've said before, let me say again, don't be naive. Conflict is a part of relationship. Do not overreact when there's conflicts or challenges. That is just a part of two people that are in perfect living life together. Conflict is a normal part of relationship. The glorious thing is we have God's wisdom and power to do conflict resolution properly. That's what the world doesn't know anything about. But as Christians, we have the truth of God's word. We understand, hey, we got to just communicate. We got to talk through this. We have to love. We have to forgive. We have to, you know, work through situations. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. And when we don't release offenses, and listen to me here, when we don't release offenses and let things go, and I'm sure in this room there are things that have happened that have hurt one another. But when we don't let things go and we hang on to them, it greatly upsets the heart of God. Look what he says in verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That word grieve speaks of the sorrow that someone feels with the death of a loved one. You ever felt that sorrow? And God says there are certain things that we can do when his spirit dwells within us that cause sorrow and grief to the heart of God. Well, what are they? Well, it's the things mentioned to me in these verses. When we lie to one another, when in anger we sin against one another, when we speak in wrong ways to one another, when we're not kind to one another, when we're not tenderhearted, when we're not forgiving one another, that grieves God's heart. That's what breaks God's heart when we're not doing those things that he desires us to do. Again, when offenses happen, it's natural to struggle with all the difficult feelings that come, right? When you're angered or hurt or offended, you struggle with what verse 31 describes, bitterness. And struggling with wrath and anger, those are all natural things. But he says, look, these have to be put away. The idea is when those feelings come, you can't let them take root. You got to make sure that they don't take root. The Bible says a root of bitterness defiles greatly. And there are many couples living in our world that are in a perpetual state of bitterness and resentment towards one another because of something that happened or just because of what's happened in their relationship and they are constantly bitter and resentful and it is affecting the entire atmosphere of their relationship. Instead, we have to be intentional, he says, to make an effort to be kind, that is courteous, you know, being considerate having manners in the way that we treat each other, being tender-hearted. That means be sensitive. Oh, I'm not going to be sensitive. Yes, be sensitive. Is your heart hard? Ask God to soften your heart. You should be tender-hearted towards your spouse, being sensitive to them, caring, the idea is, compassion. And most important, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. So how are we to forgive? The same way that God forgave us through Jesus Christ. And just ponder, how did God forgive us through Jesus? Completely. It wasn't selective. 
God didn't say, well, I mean, Tony, I can forgive you for pretty much everything, but, but that one thing there, I mean, I'm sorry, I just can't get over that. That was, that was just too grievous of an offense. That's not the way God forgave. God forgave completely. God forgives continuously. Blown it more than once. God continually extends forgiveness. He never says, look, now I have forgiven you 17 times. 18 is my limit, all right? Right there, Tony, I'm drawing the line. God forgives continuously. He continues to extend forgiveness freely without any conditions. He doesn't make us make atonement for our mistakes. All right, well, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to punish you the rest of your life for that. And I'm going to kind of hold you under my, yeah, I'll say I'll forgive you, but I'm going to kind of hold you under my thumb the rest of my life for that thing that you did. Or, And look, these are the things sometimes that happen in marriage relationships where there's this unforgiveness struggle that's going on between a couple and God says we owe each other forgiveness because God in Christ forgave us. And the only way, listen, we can extend that forgiveness is as we receive God's forgiveness ourselves. Maybe you say, look, you don't understand. It is too difficult to forgive. I just, I, it's, now we're getting somewhere. If you can say with your own words, I just can't forgive. I can't. I, I, I don't want to forgive. Great. Because now we're admitting forgiveness doesn't come from your humanity. Forgiveness is a supernatural thing. Forgiveness stems from God. And what boils down to is when we choose to obey the word of God in faith, God gives us the grace and the power of his spirit to then carry out what the command of God is in our life. You know, I have found in my Christian life that if I make the decision, eventually my feelings will catch up and follow. Don't live by feelings. You make the right decisions, and eventually your feelings will catch up to the right decision that you made as God's power and spirit enables you to do those things. Again, there are some of you that may need to work through some areas of forgiveness. Let me encourage you. Put in the effort. And put in the effort by just humbly saying, God, we need you to help us in this area so that it doesn't interfere with our relationship. And you make the right choice, and I assure you, God will give the power and the ability to soften hearts and to heal and to bring that to pass. Why don't we stand? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to open the word and to just let you help us a little bit, Lord, in regards to how to interact and treat one another and relationship dynamics, Lord. Um, you're the master of relationships, God. It's amazing that you extend relationship to us. And Lord, we ask humbly for the power of your Holy Spirit to carry out some of these thoughts and put into practice some of these truths for the benefit of our own marriage relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name that everybody said, amen, amen. amen.